Welcome to the Adventure for Good podcast. We're your hosts, Chris and Kim. In June 2018, we both left our careers at the age of 31 and started traveling with the mission of finding and creating work locally in the United States and around the world that inspires us while helping other people and the environment. This podcast documents our adventures as well as highlights the inspirational people that we meet along the way. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 12, everyone. Thank you for welcoming me. Are you excited? I'm part of everyone. (laughs) Today we have an awesome interview with our friend Susana. And we met her in Bolivia when we lived in the jungle working with Etta Projects. She is a friend of Amanda, who's the organizer. The director. The director of the center in Buena Vista, Bolivia. We met Susana through her, and we ended up doing an interview in her kitchen. So there is some background noise that you'll hear, uh, but it's not too distracting, I don't think. I wasn't distracted. No. (laughs) (laughs) Buena Vista is also near the Amboro National Park, which we talk a lot about. Susana's husband's name is Papacho, and her two kids are Rio and Nala, and we also talk about all of them. So, But I think the reason you're saying that is because it doesn't explicitly mention it. Yes. Who, who Papacho, Nala, exactly. and Rio are. Yes. So they're her kids and husband. We also had the opportunity to go on a birding expedition with them, which we talk about, and that was really fun. So I was the professional driver. Yes. Chris got to drive the whole time while I sat in the back seat and looked for birds, and Susanna was in the front passenger seat, and Papacho was actually in the back of the truck playing, standing playing, up. Playing cowboy. Yeah, <laughs> searching for birds. So it was a really fun afternoon, or actually full day that we spent with them. And they're awesome people, so we hope everyone enjoys this interview. In two weeks, next episode, episode 13, will be our review of and our discussion of our time in Porto Octai, or Porto Octai. Is uh, it a review? Are we we're rating it? No, we're just talking about it. Okay. Anyway, uh, so that'll be coming up in two weeks. Five stars. <laughs> would, would visit again. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> okay, let's go to the interview. So we're here in Buena Vista, Bolivia, with a new friend that we met named Susana, and she lives here with her husband and two kids. Uh, she's originally from the U.S., and we wanted to get to know you a little bit. And are we interviewing her, or are you just telling us her story? I'm giving an update, an <laughs> overview. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, I guess, start a little bit. Where are you from, and how did you end up in Bolivia? I grew up in South Carolina. And basically never left until I graduated from college. But at that time, I started traveling internationally and really never went back. So after working for a year, I went into the Peace Corps, and they sent me to Bolivia because I already spoke Spanish, and it's a country where other languages are spoken. So they could train me in Quechua for three months and then ideally send me to a community where that was spoken, but that didn't happen because I asked to be placed with National Parks, and um, the one they saw most fit was with Amberwell. Okay. So I went to the Santa Cruz Valleys, a town called Myrana, and was there for two years, worked with the mayor's office, and with a community where there was a giant fern forest training the local guides. There were 12 local farmers and townspeople who we were training to be tour guides to help them have another way of earning an income that wasn't destroying the forest to plant strawberries and peaches. 
So I did that for two years. And through the Peace Corps, I met my husband because we would always have training workshops where we would take a local counterpart um, so that someone would stay behind trained after we went back to the U.S., um, like most people did. And um, my husband was here in Buena Vista, and he was the local counterpart for volunteers here. He wasn't your husband. No, he wasn't. I didn't. Yeah, I met him at one of those those workshops. So after uh, several of those meetings, then we set up through Peace Corps training workshops for him to go to my town and train the guides and for me to come here and work with his conservation project, which is a bird-watching tower. So we did work exchanges like that. And then after Peace Corps, after the two years of Peace Corps, I moved to Buena Vista, we got married, and we were working, um, leading birding tours. At that point in time, he just sort of sat in the plaza and waited for whatever tourist hopped out of a, of a, out of a taxi, <laughs> sort of like a vulture. Um, and then ran out and tried to yes. convince him to go bird watching. <laughs> yes. And so I kind of helped him progress from that business model. And over the course of two years, we were taking tourists on three-week birding trips from Santa Cruz to Cochabamba. Three-week birding trips? Uh-huh. Wow. From Santa Cruz to Cochabamba up this side of the National Park, and then we would return wow. through, the, through the valleys down the other road. So it was, it was a really fun time mm-hmm. in life. Um, it allowed me to live in Bolivia and be Bolivian, live like a Bolivian, but I still got my fix with foreign foreigners. The tourists, um, yeah. With the tourists. So it was a good exchange and a good balance. In 2006, AVO became president, and I was concerned of how the politics would go. didn't want to be trapped in Bolivia and not be able to get my husband out. And so we got a visa to go to the U.S., not realizing that we had to use it within six months. So we decided that we would try out the U.S. for two years while Papacho improved his English, and we worked a little bit. But it took us a year to get jobs, Mm -hmm. and at the end of the second year, our daughter was born. So then it became a little more... Threw a wrench in the whole plan. Yeah, it did. It did. (laughs) So then I had all these misgivings about, you know, raising my child in Bolivia, educating my child in Bolivia, and that sort of thing. So we ended up staying in the U.S. for nine years. Um, We did research, wildlife disease research, with the University of Georgia for five years. Um, And then I started teaching school when our second child was born. And um, it was teaching school that sent me running back to Bolivia. It wasn't the right job for me. It was emotionally very draining. And Papacho had always wanted to come back to Bolivia. So once I realized that a public high school in in Florida wasn't going to be my ideal educational scenario for my children either, I decided I could probably just um, make up education as I went wherever I was. So all the barriers kind of fell away for me at that point. Part of my acceptance of moving back to Bolivia was that I wasn't going to come back and try to change people and improve their quality of life and teach them things. I was just going to come and live and raise my children the way I thought was best for them. And if the local people were interested in what I was doing that was different, great. My doors were open, but I wasn't going to come out with a development purpose and and a, you know, trying to change the local people because they don't, they're, they're, you know, content with their way of life. They don't see a need for change necessarily. So I wasn't going to come in and um, 
try to change people that well, you already had to be you changed. had done that right right I'd right. already had that experience and it was like hitting my head against a brick wall so I didn't want to do that so in my mind that's what I was doing just coming to live my life the way I wanted to live my life and uh-huh. so once you got here you had two kids at this point when yes. you were, when you arrived and how old were they when they when you moved back oh they were Rio was turning three and Nala was eight okay. turning eight. And so, before we go too much further, I guess people might be, again, you kind of glossed over the education saying you'll kind of make it up as you go, but mm-hmm. having spent some time with your kids, they're more intelligent than we are. So, <laughs> they've obviously found some good education along the way. Do you, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. So, in the U.S., my daughter went to public school, but she had grown up with me in a research office. So, her play at age one and two was using a computer, using a microscope. That was what she did for fun, and writing. So by the time she turned five, she already knew how to read. She taught herself. She had this goal, by the time I turned five, I want to know how to read, and she did it all by herself. She went into kindergarten and was placed with a teacher who had been given the challenge to show what she could do with the most advanced students, and then she got Nala placed in her class, and it was just like the perfect storm of how far we can push a child. So by the time Nala left kindergarten, she was reading on a sixth grade level. (laughs) Out of kindergarten? Out of kindergarten. (laughs) So she skipped first grade, went to advanced second grade in the U.S. And had, you know, was the top student in the advanced second grade. And this is all in, she was reading English. This was all in English. Yeah. So For now. Yes. So then... At the end of second grade was when I said, I can't do this anymore. Her, I didn't have a problem at that point with her her education. It was more my concerns for high school uh-huh. level that said, okay, whatever. But she was doing great. So Rio still wasn't in, in school. He was three. So we pulled her out, and I, I signed her up for homeschooling in the U.S. And she still is on the books as being homeschooled in the U.S. That was my safety net. If things didn't work out in Bolivia, I didn't have to mm-hmm. translate documents and get papers approved and that sort of thing. So she's still, both of the kids are being homeschooled in the U.S. So we brought her to Bolivia and there's a six-month difference in the school year. So we had sort of six months to, to wait and see how homeschooling was going to go, which she and I are very similar, so we butt heads. Um, she doesn't like for me to correct her and therefore we shut down a lot. <laughs> so I knew that homeschooling was not the right option for us long term. And I wasn't really sure whether it was a legal option in Bolivia anyway. But we found, we had known that there were students from this town that are bused to a Japanese colony to go to school through the eighth grade. And the more we looked into that, we, we felt like it was the right option. So we had to sort of resort to using corruption to get her a seat. Private schools have very highly contested spots, and all of the courses were full. So it just turned out that a fishing buddy of my husband's is the local judge. His child is in the school, and his wife is the director's lawyer. Mm. Okay. So, you know, we had brought him some free fishing lures over the years, and we, <laughs> we happened to have the same last name. So... All of a sudden, we were cousins, and our child needed a space in the school. So she got in on on that, but, you know, because only in Bolivia. Yeah, only in Bolivia. (laughs) Um, But she got in, and it's been, I mean, the beginning of school, like the last few months before school started, 
I was really working hard on trying to get her to read and write in Spanish because we'd done a little bit when she was little. And her first two years of life, she spoke Spanish exclusively. But when she started going out to daycares and things, she switched over entirely to English. So at home, she and I spoke English. Her, her father spoke Spanish to her, but she mostly spoke English. She could, you know, speak just fine, but reading and writing, not so much. So she goes into school, not reading and writing in Spanish, comes home on the first day and is like, I have to do an agenda. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and she said, I don't know. I said, well, let's go find somebody who can tell us. So we went to a friend's house who had had their children, had her children in the school the year before, and they quickly told us exactly what needed to happen for an agenda. It's just a diary. Every day they come home and have to write what they did in first period, what they did in second period, and that's their writing practice every uh, day. Yeah, yeah. So in Spanish. In Spanish, and so it was it was rough going, but by the end of the first month, she was doing it just like everyone else. She wow. was on the same level. They quickly whipped her handwriting into shape because they're very um, demanding on pretty handwriting. Ah. It's more important that your homework be pretty than that it have substance and be correct. <laughs> That's always something I'm just like, oh, it's not important to me, but okay. Right. <laughs> um, and so now she speaks English, Spanish, Quechua, and Japanese? Yes, so... This school is not exactly a public school and not exactly a private school. They use the Bolivian mandated curriculum, and the Bolivian curriculum includes one native language, one hour of native language instruction a week. So she takes Quechua because, based on the census, that was the main population in the area of her school. So she's been taking one hour of Quechua a week for three years now. And next year they've decided that even though the census says that most people who speak an indigenous language in that area speak Quechua, historically the region was more Guarani. So uh. now they're going to start teaching Guarani. And that was one thing I said, if you're only going to teach them the basic Quechua, why can't they learn all the different languages one each year Yeah. if they're just going to learn the basics and repeat it each year? So I'm very glad they're, they're switching. But since it's a Japanese school, the Japanese Association pays for the infrastructure, provides a lot of the materials, and then they also have the right to add additional classes. So they take four hours of Japanese instruction each week. Wow. And then one one hour of English, which is writing please 30 times and thank you 30 times, which is <laughs> which now really silly. Yeah. Yes. And she's gotten kicked out of class for helping other students and that sort of thing. But uh, we're working on managing that balance of make sure your teacher knows what you're explaining, that you're not doing the work for the other students and that sort of thing. But Nala was very shy and she's a perfectionist and she's very, she thinks that she's the center of attention at all times. And so in the U.S. I would always have to call and get her out of being in the play or speaking in front of the class. Because she was so Because she would get really nervous and just cry and not want to go to school. And the, the same thing happened here at the beginning, but by the end of her first year here in school, she had spoken, she had recited poetry in Spanish in front of 500 people. She had danced in front of people. She had played sports in front of people. Wow. And at the very end of the year, she read a story in Japanese in front of a judged audience. Wow. So, so she came a long way. So it was it was a huge, a huge difference in my 
perspective and, you know, I, I decided I can supplement academics if they're lacking at any point, but in this school they've taught her things that, that I never could have. Yeah. And overcome obstacles for her that I didn't know how to overcome. Yeah. So it's been a really amazing experience. And now to see her in her school environment, she speaks with confidence to her teachers, to other adults, which here in town, she, she's very shy still. Uh-huh. But in her environment, she's very confident. She's a leader. Um, last year, she was the top student in her class. This year, she's hoping not to be because then she has to go on stage and get recognized. But, <laughs> um, but she's right up there, and her teachers know her very well. It's a small school. You know, there's only one grade or one class for each grade. Yeah. And so they know her very well, and they understand that that she ticks a little differently than yeah. some of the others. Um, and then Rio has been, he's in his second year of kindergarten there, pre-K and kindergarten. And they last year had a Japanese teacher. And so he would come home with the Japanese stories, the Japanese puppets, um, the Japanese songs. And I was learning Japanese vocabulary from him. Mm-hmm. And even more so than just the please and thank you sit on your bottom. Like, I could say all that in, in Japanese, but things like the life cycle, they would use the words uh-huh. for birth, death, <laughs> that kind of thing in Japanese. So I was learning vocabulary from him, which was really, really neat. Yeah, that is really neat. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so in, now both your, well, Rio speaks in English and Spanish. And he some speaks Japanese. English and Spanish and a handful of words in Japanese. Japanese yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think that's impressive. Yeah, so education turns out not to be that big of a deal. Or at least what you... Right, right. Well, the school only goes through eighth grade. That, and that's the big headache. What do we do from there? Because there aren't really options on the same level without going to Santa Cruz. And, so. So yeah, Santa Cruz is about two hours... Well, about an hour and a half away. Yeah, it's not somewhere where we would go and come every day. Yeah. Um, there are boarding schools, but pro- they're not well thought of, and they're probably not the safest option. They're not well supervised dorm mothers and that sort of thing. So... We're looking at what to do. But we've been looking. It's sort of been on my mind ever since we enrolled in mm-hmm. that school. Every year we ask the school to add high school, and maybe. Yeah. yeah. They've been asking for seven years or so, but we have three more years to make that decision. So yeah. I'm hoping the other options appear in the meantime. Yeah. At least it's not next year. Right. <laughs> right. And so... I think the other thing that we found fascinating, and we know a little bit of the story, but you guys picked up basically everything and just moved back to Bolivia. You left jobs and incomes and everything and kind of showed up here and started over? We did, and it it was a, it was something we had somewhat planned for because we knew it was likely in our future, but it wasn't like we had a date that this was going to happen and we prepared for it for three years. Yeah. It was sort of like spring break. I decided I couldn't take it anymore, and three months later we, we left. Right. So fortunately, we bought a house when the market was really low. Because, yeah, you had moved back in, like, 2007? We moved back in 2000, yeah, in 2006. Okay. To the U.S.? To the U.S. We lived in D.C. for a year, then we moved to Florida and rented for two years. So we bought a house in 2010. Okay. So right at the bottom of the... Right at the bottom. Yeah. And then we sold it in 2015. Okay. And... Basically, the previous owners had dropped the price significantly to be able to sell their house, but we were able to sell it again at the at the top price where they had mm-hmm. wanted to sell it. So over five years, we had a 30% profit. Bolivian culture doesn't really buy into that. 
let's get a mortgage and pay on it for 15 or 30 years. So the minute we bought the house, Papacha was like, we've got to get out of debt. We've got to pay this off. Oh, in the U.S.? In the U.S. Yeah, because he didn't grow up with that. He didn't grow up with that mindset. So we paid off the house in four years, um, you know, on basic field research salaries that are kind of like what college students would work at in the summers. Like we didn't have high salaries at all, but you know, we liked the outdoors and we had fun at our jobs. So we didn't need to go looking for entertainment on the weekends. We'd pretty much had fun all week. We cooked at home. We gardened for entertainment and physical activity and we lived very simply. So people would come to our houses and our house and say, it's empty. You don't have any, where's all the stuff? And and all his friends would come and say, where are her toys? <laughs> there they are. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she's got. <laughs> and so we live very simply, but it's not like we were denying ourselves anything that we wanted either. That was just, we. that's how we yeah. preferred to live. Yeah. We really, you know, with one of our salaries, could have survived just fine. So we sold our house and came to Bolivia. We bought a house and a truck. And which, which cars are much more expensive here. <laughs> right. No, we sold our two, you know, pretty decent vehicles in the U.S. They were both used, but they were functional and reliable, and they made us perfectly happy. And for what we sold our two vehicles for in the U.S., we had to add on like five or $6,000 more to get one vehicle that wasn't as nice. Yeah. So that was... Sort of, we just had to suck it up and go, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. But on the flip side, housing is cheaper, right? Housing is much cheaper. So, I mean, and there are still people who would say that our house is very expensive, very luxurious, and it's got plenty of things that don't work. So, (laughs) yeah, we're sitting in the kitchen right now. (laughs) It's not, you know, by US standards, it's pretty simple, but based on how the local people live, it's, I mean, we have a washing machine, we have, a sink in the kitchen, which when I was first in Bolivia, uh-huh. after I went back, um, before I got married, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to rent a place that has a sink in the kitchen. And my brother's girlfriend was like, oh my goodness, I feel so bad. I've been complaining about not having a dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. but it's all in perspective, it right? It is. It is. So I have a washing machine, which has been our big luxury, I guess, yeah. this time around. I like um, this house. I think it's very charming. Yeah. And, you know, we'll... We'll take, if you don't mind, we'll take a couple of pictures sure. of us sitting in here just so people mm-hmm. can have an idea of what a, a standard Bolivian or the, in this region Bolivian house would look mm-hmm. like. So, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, people probably imagine everywhere from like mansion, the, the, the gringos come in and buy a mansion right. to like they're living in a mud hut with a <laughs> thatch roof, which mm-hmm. exists not yes. too far from here, but at the same time, we're far from that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you move back and. You had to figure out, at some point, I imagine, how to make money again. Right, right, yes. Your kids had you know, figured out school. They mm-hmm. were good, so. Did you send Papacho into the square and make him start jumping through? <laughs> uh, yeah. We were hesitant to get back into tourism because at that point, um, the park, the National Park Administration was not favorable to tourism, and so it, it was going to be even more of an uphill battle than daily life in Bolivia always is. So what we did, we we brought a certain amount of money to just invest. And Papacho's idea was he knew a lot of friends that had debts and they couldn't get out of debt. They didn't administrate their money very well and couldn't get out of debt. So his idea was to help the town by giving microloans, helping people 
pay off their other debt, giving a lower interest rate so they could get out of these high interest loans with the banks and stuff and and pay off their debt and be fiscally sound and right. then have, you know, a nest egg to invest in their own business and and be good. It didn't really have that result. Oh. <laughs> so long story short. <laughs> uh, we had good intentions, but what we ended up doing was lending money to people who had really not much intention of paying money back saw it as we came by our money easily and they should have that same privilege and so we had to turn into meaner people that were accustomed to being yeah it's hard to be that strict too yeah so we learned a lot through the process not necessarily lessons we wanted to learn or had felt lacking but um (laughs) we learned a lot about people and money and responsibility and the culture here so but for a year, that's what we lived off of, or interest from loans, and, you know, we made it. We got by. But by the second year, we were starting to go, okay, we need to do something differently. And, you know, I was accustomed to having a salary, mm-hmm. knowing how much I had to spend each month, knowing that on the 30th of the month, the money was going to be in my bank account. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, should I get a real job? Like, that's not what I came for. But should I? And then I started looking at the local situation. And even the people in the mayor's office or in a bank position, they're often not paid for three months. So even if you have a salary and a set work schedule and an official title and position, that set salary and economic dependent or, you know, stable level, it doesn't exist on any level here. So I was like, okay, nope, because that's just something I need to... Get used to. Yeah. That steady income, knowing how much is going to be in the bank on every day of the month is not going to be part That's of not my like, life here. Yeah, like that doesn't exist. So um, we, we invested in a few different things. Instead of loaning money, we did investment in businesses. Some of those worked out well, and some of those are still, we're still waiting for them to work out well. Don't give up hope. No, and, and they're starting, it's been two years, but some of them are starting to trickle trickle in, and that's good. It's time to recoup some of that. So I think, honestly, for, for income, the second year was the hardest because we were sort of not doing these small loans where a little bit would come in at a time, but we were investing more on mm-hmm. a larger scale, but it didn't Nothing was coming in. Yeah, more was going out than was coming right. in. Yeah, yeah. So that was a frustrating, a more frustrating time, I think, overall. But at the end of, we had been here almost a year, and they changed the director of the national park to a local guy, um, someone Papacho had known most of his life, and he's a he's a forestry engineer. So someone who was interested in conservation, yeah. who was interested in what a national park should be, and so we became willing to get back into tourism. It still wasn't you know, raining tourists. There still aren't a ton of them, but... At least knowing you had a little bit of support, Right, and that that having that option to go without conflict into the national park and that there was someone who would be willing to accept our ways of contributing as well was good. So we started volunteering with the park. We started... There's a nature interpretation center. We started helping to get it back in order to have it functioning... And so still with tourism, it was more contributing to getting the basic structure running. 
but at least there was a positive environment to do that in. So through that, I had always had complaints, and this was a big part of my adjustment to Bolivia. Like after a year, year and a half, I started finding that I was complaining a lot about situations. And I wasn't willing to act on my complaints because I didn't come to change the people and I didn't come to change the culture. Right, you came to live your life. Right, but then here I was complaining about it. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to become a bitter person if, if this pattern continues. So little by little, I taught myself not to complain if I wasn't willing to do something about it. And so with with the park, each year on its anniversary, they have a hike that goes from town to one of the different camps of the park. And when it was started, like 30 years ago, it was a really good thing with a strong conservation focus. Mm -hmm. But over the last 15 years or so, it's gotten to be just another version of a town party. You know, people go in and get drunk. They take their big radios and make a lot of noise, and there's not much teaching or... Right. Being in nature. It's just a party and they go into the national park. So for the three years that we've been here each year, I was like, oh, next year I'm going to do something different. Next year I'm going to do something in town to celebrate the anniversary of the park. So this year I did it and I approached the park director in January, February and said, we've got to change this. We've got to do something different. We've got to do something more. And so... The anniversary was in August, and we did, it ended up being four days of activities. They still did the, the walk, the hike, but there was a formal ceremony recognizing the founders of the park and all the players over the last 34 years who've been um, important in mm-hmm. the park history. There were, that's where the green movie night got started um, that we're doing now once a month. But the big part for me was doing... On the, sat- on the weekend, I did a, an educational fair mm-hmm. in the plaza. And 12 different organizations came and did educational stands and sold T-shirts and jewelry and toys, raising awareness for conservation and handed out flyers. And I had expected lots of participation from universities and student groups, which didn't really come through. It wasn't as well attended as I'd hoped. But the big result from that weekend has been the collaboration between the different organizations that were were there. Mm -hmm. So Etta Projects was there and the communities that they've worked with, with medicinal plants and selling their medicinal concoctions, but there were were FAN and Fundacion Patino. There were all sorts of nonprofits that were there and they all got to know each other and see how each other was working and make build relationships. Yeah, make so those it's kind of like this vacuum. We've all wanted to support Amboro National Park, but we've never had a place to do it yeah. or a place we trusted to say, what do you need? How can we help? So it's been interesting to see the results from that festival, and personally it has been life-changing Yeah, because you know we got all these people together, and it's kind of like they recognized that there was someone locally on the ground that they didn't yeah. realize was here so with the birding community we've you know birding tourism has picked up for us like we're sort of the local point of contact Mm -hmm. for that and there's a big national movement to get more 
birding observation going. I sort of became the chief advisor to the national park director for a while, <laughs> and that was interesting um, because you don't see many females, especially doing that that type role. of role. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just with the different educational initiatives, it's been it's been neat to see. Yeah. Um, we've become sort of contact people for for the region. Yeah. Backing up just a little bit, mm-hmm. how I know we've mentioned Amboro National Park. How big is that park, and where like? What does, role does Buena Vista play in there? So Amboro National Park is a, basically a million and a half acres. It covers four different ecosystems, the Andes, the Amazon, the Chaco, which are dry grasslands, and the Brazilian Cerrado, which are grasslands with islands of forest. Okay. So these huge four ecoregions come together in the park, and so there's lots of biodiversity because you can find animals and plants from each of those four Eco-regions. There are 10 municipalities, 10 towns that make up Amboro, and Buena Vista is the one that has the largest part of its territory okay. lying within the park. Huh. And so Amboro lies basically to the north and to the west of Santa Cruz. Right. If you go out the road to the west, the main tourist point of entry to the park is Semaipata, and to the north is Buena Vista. Okay. So if people are going to visit Amboro, they, they pretty much start here. Yeah. And so, I guess now, you, you came in back to Bolivia saying, we're not going to change, we, we're not here to change Bolivia, mm-hmm. but now, it sounds like you've come to the point where you're like, we're going to do our tourism, and, and that's going to have a positive impact, but our goal isn't necessarily to change people, is that... Right, it's still, we don't want to obligate people to see things our way, but I also don't want to raise my children just being accepting of this is how life is and there's nothing, nothing to do. Yeah. So I want to set that example for my own kids too. And it's it's interesting, you know, we get a lot of criticism and we're not, it's been really hard for Papacho, even more so than for me because he thought he could come back to Buena Vista. This is where he grew up. He knows everyone. He didn't realize that there would be a problem of fitting in because he's changed yeah. um, by living in another country and by everything being organized and orderly and you don't have to persist and insist to get your banking transactions done or, you know, just those little details. But we get a lot of criticism because we don't live and raise our children and do and eat the Bolivian way. We don't conform to the system and it's a very conformist culture. So we're, we're both highly criticized by family members and friends. But when it comes to different things around town, initiatives that people think would be good to have happen, they come looking for us to do it, whether it be business, whether it be tourism, whether it be education. Across the board, they think that we can do it. And so they look for us. It's like, can the town run without us? Like, <laughs> sometimes it's just... You've only been back We can't do it all. We can do a few things, but right. we can't do it all. So we really have to... We've learned to put up boundaries and say, this is what we can do. This is what you need to find someone else to do. Yeah. And has, do you think having Papacho being a local representative, I guess, for your family, I guess, do you think you've been able to accomplish things you wouldn't have been able to accomplish if it was just you, the foreigner, coming in trying to do this on your own? Absolutely. Or if it was two, two of a husband and wife and you were married to another mm-hmm. American? Absolutely. It is interesting to see because he was just a little poor kid from three blocks off the plaza. 
mm-hmm. uh, growing up. And here the cultural hierarchy is you live on the plaza, you're high society, one block off, you're a little bit lower, or two blocks off, you're a little bit lower, and three blocks off, you're just a poor kid. So he was nobody. His friends took advantage of him. He was their go-by beer guy. Yeah. You know, They sent him on errands. He was the errand boy for the group of friends. But now he's been in the U.S. His economy has improved. He's come back, and it's almost like he's a pillar of society. And he speaks English. He speaks English. And, you know, any tourist appears at the plaza. He doesn't have to be sitting up there. There are alarm bells that ring, and everybody's calling him, There's a tourist here. They need you. <laughs> okay, well, is there anyone else who can tell them anything about the town? <laughs> it, it comes to extremes. But I have... On you know, I, I tend more towards the education side of things. So even as far as posting on Facebook, like, a message about, you know, for this festival, let's make sure we don't throw our trash on the ground or whatever. I publish under his name. I don't publish under mine. I've been attacked on social media by for being the foreigner who knows everything, coming in to tell them how yeah. to run things. Yeah. But if I publish it under his name, it's a great idea. No one says anything. Yeah. Nobody says anything, and they think it's great that he cares and is worried about his town. So it's a totally different reaction. <laughs> and so even with this festival that I did, it was like, oh, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to get out there in my own voice, in my own face, when for a year I've been doing things as disguised as him. So I'm not sure how it's going to go. But it kind of put me back out there as... Yeah as my own person. And I was really starting to, to suffer of the gender inequality and that sort of thing. Like I've never ever had to to pose as a man to get hurt, you know. Right. Hurt. This was the first right. time in my life that I was like, is is it because I'm a woman? Right. <laughs> and I mean, it was it, a really strange experience. It could have really been easily been the other way around, right? Where sure. he, where you would could have been from here and he could mm-hmm. have been the foreigner, but it just happens to be mm-hmm. gender the genders, yeah. yeah. Do you feel that the that your clout has risen in the last four months, five months, three months since the thing, or...? Yes. Maybe not on a local level. Like, Papacho is well-known around town. Not very many people know my name, and that's fine. But more on a departmental level in Santa Cruz and that sort of thing with the nonprofit organizations in the conservation community. The parks. Yeah, on a more professional level, I've established myself. And I don't know that I really planned on doing that, but I did. <laughs> Does that feel like, I guess, thinking back a couple of years, you probably couldn't imagine where you're at now? No, I couldn't. And it wasn't really my goal. So when I talked, you know, through the years of living in the U.S. and raising my daughter more so than anything because I was working when Rio was little, but I was in mom's groups and different, you know, social groups. And I would always talk about coming back to Bolivia and my plan, my goal was to have a chocolate farm and a goat milk farm. Uh-huh. So I was going to grow chocolate, grow cacao trees, and raise goats for goat milk that I would sell to the Swiss cheese makers who would make goat cheese out of it. And then I would make goat milk soap. And, and this was my plan. And people are like, that's really weird. But um, <laughs> I haven't done any of that. Like, I don't actually want any other creatures that I need to be responsible for maintaining alive at this point. <laughs> So I'm not sure about the goat thing. I do plant chocolate seeds every year and give the plants away. So I'm growing chocolate, just not for myself, I guess. Uh-huh. But it's not what I envisioned for coming back here. We, you know, we thought we would have a small farm. And we do on land, but the obstacles for getting electricity and water out there 
it was going to be so long before we could build a house that we just bought a house in town. Okay. I didn't imagine living in town. I didn't imagine living three blocks from my in-laws. I didn't <laughs> imagine, you know, going to the market every day or going out. You know, I imagined being more isolated. Yeah. And um, having little cabanas for guests and for my parents to come visit and that sort of thing. But I didn't, I didn't really expect to be urban and back in the professional world. Yeah. So do you think, I guess moving forward, you'll continue with the trying to change things by educating and, and keep growing that? Or have you reached capacity of what you want? Definitely education will continue to be my focus. I know of a few things on the horizon for the rest of this year and next year that I will be involved with local guide education. So promoting tourism and education, tourism through education and vice versa. Conservation and I've been writing writing children's books and making coloring books to teach the local children more about, you know, they draw a picture of what Amberoa National Park is and we've got tigers and lions from Africa and giraffes. So they don't really know, you know, it's we're on the edge of the national park, but they're very separated from nature. Right. So just small things, you know, whatever I can do, and I'm not a talented artist, but it's what I can do and nobody else is doing it. So yeah. it's better than nothing. But we're working on identifying other people who can be part of that. You know, we've talked to the district, the school district. We've talked to different nonprofits about what needs to be done. And every time I'm asked, you know, I've been asked about how to uh, prevent domestic violence, how to prevent teenage pregnancy, how to do all sorts of social programs. And it all has to start with education. And it's not just in schools. The families here are very disintegrated. Children are raised by their grandparents or raised by the streets. And so there's so many models that they don't have for successful adult living. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's all got to start with education, but on every level um, from parents and and from students. So you got to start somewhere. Right. But at this point, you know, I can't, I can't get into sex education and I can't get into self-esteem training. I'm doing what I'm doing. You got to start with conservation. And I can guide other people into where they can insert themselves into the overall picture. Yeah, but I'm I'm in my field, and yeah. that's where I'm gonna stay. Do you think the park is headed in a different direction at all than you saw ten years ago? Like, as far as more people are aware of its existence and conservation and what to do to protect the environment, or not really? I think the sense of urgency is increasing uh-huh. with climate change. What is expected? What is uh, modeled for this area is a shorter, wetter, wet season, so really heavy rains over a short period of time, and a really long dry season, which is hard. Yeah. Nothing grows in a dry season. And with more deforestation, we'll have more desertification. Yeah. It's going to be harder to grow our food, and we're going to have more landslide-type things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, um, all the root systems are mm-hmm. gone. And- so Santa Cruz is going to have flooding, and they're going to have problems with having water during the, the dry season. Yeah. So I think that is being um, socialized pretty well because two years ago they had drastic water shortages in La Paz. People were going to the community spigot and standing in line for mm-hmm. a bucket of water each day kind of thing. Um, so that is extreme. And in, in Santa Cruz there's a tendency to say, well, we have, we're really humid. We're not going to have water shortages, but it's going to be this 
mm-hmm. difference. It's going to yeah. be too much water at one time and none at another time. And I think the communication is getting out there that that is needed, but development and population growth is a problem. There's a rapid expansion in yeah. the cities, even in the smaller towns. I mean, at some point, the city could come out to engulf Buena Vista. We're not that far away. So When we saw that, I mean, we were in Montero uh, 10 years ago, and it's mm-hmm. way different now. And yes. Montero is only an hour down the road, uh-huh. so... Yeah. yeah. So in in that sense, I think the community and the people who are educating and working for conservation are on the right track. Politically, I am concerned. This week, the our friend, the, the director of the park, has been dislodged, um, and I can't get anyone to tell me who the new director is because it must be really bad news. I'm concerned for the future of the park management, which already was understaffed and under-supported yeah. Politically, and Bolivia has how many national parks? Twenty-two. Twenty-two. That's a lot. First, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that big of a country, right? One, well, I think, and it's also important to talk about like the, the diversity within Bolivia is is, is yeah. incredible. So mm-hmm. I mean, you have you have altitudes of over sixteen thousand feet, all the yeah. way down to basically sea level, feet, right? Yeah, and. And everywhere in between, you've got all sorts of different climates and, mm-hmm. and ecosystems. And it's there's, what, the sixth most diverse in terms of birds right. in, yeah. In, yeah. on the planet. And so I guess those 22 parks are just wildly... Everyone's different. Yeah, yeah they are. Um, and there is a corridor of parks, and Amber is part of that. It's sort of a line of national parks that connects Bolivia or Brazil and Peru on the either side of us. Um, so that is is a big gain that was mm-hmm. sort of still in the works when I first came to Bolivia. So it's kind of neat to see that in function. Yeah. But, you know, those protected areas aren't without out threats. Mm-hmm. Coca growing does requires a lot of deforestation. Logging, illegal logging, and no one's replanting. There, I don't know of any reforestation projects except in the Chiquitania out east of Santa Cruz. But, yeah, so differences in altitude, differences in humidity. Um, we're in the elbow of the Andes. So the Andes run north and south. The clouds and the humidity gather in the equator. The heat rises and the humidity rises. The clouds form and move out from the equator, north and south. So as the clouds come our direction, they don't really hit any obstacles until they get to this little point where the Andes jut out in that sort of elbow. And so that's when the clouds dump their rain in the area we are now. It's very humid. On this side of that elbow, we have, you know, the Amazonia, the more humid Yungas forest, mountain, mountainous forest. And then as the clouds go across the mountain range, um, they lose humidity. They mm-hmm. disappear. And so the south side of Bolivia, the south side of this, this elbow is more dry climate, so dry, tropical, thorny forests, dry grasslands. And then as you get into Chile, there's even desert. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The driest desert in the world. Right. Uh, so, San Pedro, Atacama. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the humidity changes, the elevation changes. We have mountains, we have lowlands. And so, you know, the diversity is just enormous. 
And pretty much, I mean, the population isn't so large in Bolivia that these areas, they're still relatively well preserved in relation to other, in comparison with other countries around mm-hmm. um, us. So there are a lot of threats. There are very degraded areas and lots of deforestation especially. But compared with Brazil, we're, we've still got something going for us. Yeah. So we have time to, to try to, to try reverse to save some it of it. And, yeah. And to educate people. Yeah. And so if, if people wanted to come and go on a birding tour with mm-hmm. you, or maybe just a tour of any kind, because I know uh, Papacho does tours in a jaguar park and mm-hmm. all sorts of really, you guys are knowledgeable across the board, not just birds. Well, we can attest to that, too, because we went birding with them last week. Yep, we saw 187? <laughs> Five species Five? in a day. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which is incredible. Yeah, so how would people find you or maybe reach out to you if they wanted more information? We have a web page. It's birdwatchingbolivia.com, and all of our contact information is there, our email. Um, we're also the, the municipal protected area that we manage um, we have it on Facebook, and it's the Kurichi Quajo, C-U-R-I-C-H-I-C-U-A-J-O. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the local the local words for wetlands and the local word for tiger heron. So it's the tiger heron pool, okay. Okay. sort of the English translation. Um, so that's sort of how we started with birding was that municipal protected area, and mm-hmm. from there um, we've branched out, but... Yeah, our, our webpage has all of our information, and shortly there will be a Birds of Bolivia webpage being launched. It should come out about mid-November, and um, we'll be featured on there as well with all of our contact information and, and what we specialize in. So, great. And so you could put together a tour from anywhere from a, a day to three weeks, it sounds like. Right. We like to connect people with local guides where they're available mm-hmm. and, and knowledgeable about birds, but we are also available for two or three week trips where, you know, people are looking for certain species or, or as many species as they can see mm-hmm. in a short time. We're, we're and there's a lot of birds them. here that you're not going to see anywhere else in the world. Right. We yeah. have 17 endemics that are only found in Bolivia. And 12 additional ones that are only found, like, in Bolivia and right on the border of mm-hmm. the surrounding countries. So, and then, you know, just in a relatively small area, you can see a lot of different things due to the changing habitats. Yeah, that's what the bird watching with you guys was so much fun because you drive just a little ways and you can mm-hmm. see so many different birds. No, right here within just a few mile difference, yeah. we, we hit three different ecoregions. So. Yeah. One's more dry, one's more humid, and one's more, more elevation. So it's it's pretty neat how in one day or even half a day you can go through three yeah. three ecoregions and, and see them and know them pretty well. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So you can, any of our Spanish-speaking listeners, you know, <laughs> all of our Japanese ones, can we can have Nala translate yes. and English. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and if anyone was interested in doing anything to support Amboro National Park mm-hmm. or any of the parks in Bolivia. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, we are looking to get more researchers down here. Um, there have been research studies uh, in Amboro, but a lot of that body of knowledge has not been maintained in collection. Um, and obviously there's a lot that could still be studied. So anyone, um, you know, even if it's through photography or or student groups to come down, we can help uh, coordinate that. Or with 
research equipment, even binoculars, telescopes, cameras. Uh, a lot of that stuff is very difficult to get in Bolivia. Binoculars are impossible to get a good quality binocular in, in Bolivia. So used equipment or even if it's just um, Spanish language educational materials, books, mm-hmm. like for the school this past year, in the kindergarten, the Japanese teachers, there was no, they got new teachers and the, there were no teachers that spoke Japanese and all of their children's books were in Japanese. So all of a sudden we had three Bolivian teachers teaching in a classroom where all the books were in Japanese <laughs> <laughs> and there were no stories that they could read to the students. So I, I searched for people who could help. Give some get, Spanish Yeah, school. so we got a decent start on a collection. So that kind of thing. You know, we're in a Spanish-speaking country. You would think we could get uh, educational materials here, but they're really, really lacking. Okay. Um, Argentina and Uruguay have much better collections, but in the U.S. there's a lot more than there is here even. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, interesting. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, cool. well, that's fine. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah. Sure. Is there anything else that we missed that you want to share? Um, Can you name all of Papacho's 15, 14 siblings? <laughs> Just out of if you give me time, I'm sure <laughs> you got 30 I could come seconds. up with it. Okay, let's see. The twins are Daisy and Delma, and then there were two boys, and their names are Erwin and Adil, and then, oh, Pity. Is, those are the top five, the oldest five. And then the second group of five is Ruti, Elena, Angela, no, uh, no, Freddie. And there's another girl. Ruthie, Elena, Angela. Way to put her out. Freddie. I just thought naming all 15 would be tough. And then there's one other girl in that middle group. Hang on, I'll think of who it, who's missing in a minute. And then the youngest five are Nilda, Noe, Papacho, whose name is Ramon, Edith, and Marta. So who's missing? I would say 14. Oh, Ingrid. So 15 out of 15. Yeah. Impressive. And I can't do them. I don't know actually the order of the middle five. I know the order of the top five and the bottom five, but the middle five, I don't know who's. It's a little muddy. Yeah. A little muddy in there. Yeah. (laughs) Needless to say, you have a big family here. Yes. My children are grandchildren number 40 and 42. Wow. Out of 43. So can you name all 42? No, no, no. I don't. (laughs) I don't have a clue. All right. Well, thank you again. And sure. And we will it. definitely put links to all the stuff you mentioned, except for the the really hard one. But no, we'll, we'll make sure people can get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions, you can ask us, and we'll send them your way. And perfect. Yeah. Thanks again. It's been great. Thank you guys for coming to Bolivia and oh, having sure the heart we'll that back. you do for for whatever needs to be done. You're yeah. been willing to do it. We love that. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, I love Bolivia. It's been great to get to spend more time here. Well, we're here when you're ready to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Great.